Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and brings impact to your life. Enjoy the message. This morning, I'm just going to kind of want to take a little bit of time and and, uh, look at the the letter that we find in the New Testament. This, um, through January, we've been studying the book of Romans on, on our midweek services. Incredible book. And this is probably on uh, several lists of this is our favorite book in the New Testament, and that is Ephesians. And so I want to look at that um, letter today and, and kind of unpack it and look at some things that stick out about the church in Ephesus and, and what we could learn from that. And so I just want to speak to you this morning from this title, Dear Church, Dear Church. Why don't we pray together? Lord, we love you this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to be here. God, we pray that you would anoint this part of the service and the remainder of our time together. God, we ask that your ultimate will would be accomplished. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Speak to our hearts today, and we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning. You may be seated. There are... um, uh, several things that you could uh, you could take a whole year really and and look at the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to attempt to do it in in one service this morning. We may split it up and go into uh, next week uh, as well. We'll just see how time goes today. But um, what sticks out about the church in Ephesus is it's um, it's the only church that I know of in the scripture that we can see its its birth its life and its death and so today um i i want to look at at that i want to look at its birth and i want to look at its death and i want to um explore what we can learn from a church that had some incredible growth a church that experienced the, the power of the Holy Ghost unlike any other, and yet got confused along the way, drifted, and, and ultimately disappeared. So um, in order to understand the birth, we have to go back to the beginning, which uh, we find in Acts chapter 19, um, and we're going to kind of be in that chapter. You can Keep your Bibles open to that, if you will. But what we find in Acts 19, we find um, Apollos is there, and Apollos is teaching um, in in Ephesus, and he doesn't really fully understand the gospel yet, and so Priscilla and Aquila have to pull him aside and help him see all of the all of the parts and explain it to him. But and so when Paul gets there. He finds some disciples and he asked them, hey, have you received the Holy Ghost yet since you believed? And their response was, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And then Paul lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Ghost. And then from there, they begin to prophesy. And and so we're going to pick it up in verse number eight. And the Bible says he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in the unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul was involved in this, in this church plant from the very beginning. Paul is not partnering with another group of religious people. Paul is not, this is not some non-denominational church that we find in Ephesus. There is no church in Ephesus. There are no followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul comes in with the intent to plant a church and raise up men and women to run that church and to and then to head into uh, and onto whatever is next for him. And so uh, within two years, the Bible tells us there was no one in Asia that had not heard the word of the Lord, not among the Jews or among the Gentiles. They all heard the word of the Lord. Now, I want, us, I want to show you how deep the gospel made its way through Ephesus. We're going to jump down to uh, verse number 21, and then we'll, co- we'll come back to uh, the other verses that we skipped here in just a moment. But verse number 21, beginning there, reads, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying... After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, you got to love my guy Demetrius here. (laughs) you got to love him here in this moment, because one of two things just happened. Either he legitimately believes that when he's making these silver images that he is making a god, or he thinks he just got busted by Paul. But either way, he's, he's undeterred from continuing on in his course of action. And I don't know which is crazier. He may think that when he is hammering silver into the shape, of, he's building a god. And just how powerful is a god that if you made it? If you can manipulate and make it, how can it possibly be God? How how tiny and weak is your God if your God is dependent upon you and your skills and your abilities? You got to love this guy. And and so this, this is Paul's argument earlier in Acts 17 when he says, you know, God is not made by any. He is not served by any human hands as though he needed anything. Paul said he gives breath and life to, to all. It's a, it's, a, it's a disruptive attack on the idolatry that's happening in, in Ephesus and also Athens. And so we continue reading on in verse 27. The Bible says, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana may be counted as nothing 
that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. See what sin does? It, it blinds you, and it, and it makes us foolish. That's what sin does. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius, I always have trouble with his name, and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So let's unpack this passage for a moment, because this story reflects something that I don't believe has occurred to any other church in Christian history, namely that the gospel has completely penetrated a singular city. Okay, so in Ephesus, Paul has proclaimed the word of God, and and the spirit of God has moved in such a way that people who are making money off of sinful gain are no longer making money off of those sinful activities. The whole social economic climate of Ephesus has, by the gospel, been turned on its head. And as a result, if you were in a line of business that made money off of lying, cheating, exploiting, you were no longer able to make that money any longer. Your revenue stream has been cut literally off. So those who made money off of such things, they rioted against the gospel. And you could, you could look at some things uh, uh, like the Great Awakenings, but I don't know of any other place where the gospel so affected a city of ministry like this. And can you imagine this happening in our area? I mean, if the gospel had so penetrated, if the word of God has gone out so forcefully by the power of the Holy Ghost that there's no longer money to be made off of things like uh, uh, drug deals and bars and all other sorts of things. I'm being nice when I'm talking about certain evil that's going on in the world. But can you imagine the word of God going out so forcefully? Imagine that there was no clientele at all for any of those activities. Because the word of God has so transformed the hearts and lives of men and women. I mean, it's hard to even imagine, isn't it? It almost feels impossible, and yet that's what happened in Ephesus. And you can follow the church at Ephesus throughout the pages of the New Testament because there's so much written to the church and for the church. There's the letter to the Ephesians written by Paul when he was in prison back to this church that he planted. And then Timothy is an elder of Ephesus. And so Paul, when he writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy, he's talking about, he's talking with him about the church. And when he's telling Timothy about leading the church, Paul's writing about Ephesus. It's all over the place. John 1, 2, and 3 were written by John, who was an elder at the church at Ephesus. So if you're keeping track staff-wise, we've got a pretty spectacular staff in place. I mean, this is varsity-level stuff. Now, I love our stuff. I love love our staff here at Landmark, but here's the deal. We expound upon Scripture. We interpret Scripture. John wrote Scripture. Now, that's different, okay? 
when I say, when Brother Rice says, Jesus said, we point to Scripture. When John says, Jesus said, he's literally saying, Jesus said this to me one day when we were walking. Okay, so there's difference. And so you've got this great attention to this church and this strong leadership. And there aren't many alarms that are going off and uh, as of this moment. So as you read these letters, there are, there are some warnings in the book of Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy and 1 and 3 John, but there's nothing to make you think, man, this church is in trouble. There's nothing to make you stop and go, I don't know about that. There's nothing happening to make you stop and wonder. But then we read in Revelation 2. Revelation 2, starting in verse number 1, familiar scripture, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He writes, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. I just want to stop there for just a moment and, like Jesus, commend this church. Because here's what we hear is happening in Ephesus. This church is enduring patiently. And and they're not growing weary in their patient endurance. Now, if I, if I look uh, at, at, at the close to 30 years that I've been a part of this, that I have followed Jesus Christ, if I look at that near 30 years, I feel like I have endured well, okay? But I haven't always endured patiently. Come on, somebody. I have not always endured without getting weary from enduring, okay? Anybody else? Am I the only one up here that's just going to be honest this morning? Okay, <laughs> there have been times when I have endured because I don't have a say, right? I don't, I don't have a say in things, and I can't get out of it. And if there was an easy button, I would just smack that as hard as I could. I would want out. But there have been those moments, but it hasn't been my call. It hasn't been my decision. And so I endured patiently. Why? Because there wasn't no other option. There wasn't no other way. There wasn't no other route. And I'll tell you that in that endurance, I wasn't always glad about it. I wasn't always glad to be enduring, okay? So not only did I lack patience, but I've also grown weary in enduring. But there have been seasons, okay, in in my own journey where it felt dry, where I felt like I was praying and I had to exercise my faith muscles, so to speak, to trust that, that, that he was there and that I could rely on his promises in the word and, and believe that God is who he really says he is. There have been those times and those moments. And so I read about these guys and gals in Ephesus and I'm, I'm just like, I'm kind of blown away by what it says about them. They endured patience. So you've got a couple couple big components going on here. They endure well, and they've got great theology. Pretty good combination. They've got great doctrine. They know the word of God. According to this text, they're able to spot false teachers. 
okay, which implies they know their stuff. Okay, when they can, when they hear somebody teach and, and say something that doesn't line up, they call them on the spot and say, that doesn't line up with what it says. Okay, they've got great theology. They, they can be able to spot false teachers. Okay, they can obviously stop and say, say, you are obviously not an apostle because what you are saying is untrue. They don't put up with liars when it comes to doctrine. So they're theologically sound. And they endure well. Pretty powerful. And then we get to verse 4 in Revelation where he says, but I have this against you. Have you ever been in one of those conversations before where people are just like, I mean, it's going so well. Man, I love, I love you. Man, you just, you're so nice. You're so great. You're so generous. Like, you're so, I mean, you're good with people. Such a good guy. So glad that you're my friend. But, I got, there's a problem. There's a problem. We're, 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 uh, and all of a sudden, it, the, the temperature of the room just changes, right? That's exactly what happened here. Okay, look at verse four. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, this is a heavy text. Doctrine alone and endurance alone is not exactly what Christ is after. Because he says, I have this against you. Yes, you have truth. You're enduring well. But here's what I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And then he tells them to do a couple of things. One is to repent about abandoning that love. And two is to get back to doing things that you did at first. Okay, let's let's get back there. Now, we have to do a little bit of a uh, little bit of work with that sentence because here's what we know to be true. God's affection for us, his love for us, and and forgiveness of us is not predicated upon anything we do or don't do. Rather, God's love for us is based in, in his completed work on Calvary, okay? When he robed himself in flesh and died for you and I and, and paid for the sins of all, that's what his love is based upon. So when he engages Ephesus and says, hey, you've abandoned the love that you had at first, and, and so you need to repent and get back to what you did at first, he's saying, that if you remember what you did and you'll do those two things, that affection, that love that you had for me, not that I had for you because that never stopped because my love has already settled. But if you would get back to that love that you have for me, your love for me will be restored. And so then we've got this, we've got this scary word of warning. If you don't, okay? If you're just doctrinally, doctrinally correct, okay, beating your chest as boldly and, and, and enduring in truth, but you have no affection for me, you have no love for me, you have no desire for me, he says, I'm pulling out the lampstand. 
and I'm shutting up. I am removing my presence, and I'll continue to save and do work as I choose to save and do work, but it will not be through you. This is, this is heavy. It's a, that's a terrifying threat. And, and I haven't seen any live feeds coming from the church of Ephesus lately, so um, it appears they didn't heed the advice. But there are some very pointed things that you need to hear here. Although he commends them for sound doctrine, it appears that sound doctrine does not lead us to a deeper love for Jesus Christ. And he's all about endurance and enduring. But enduring, that is not leading to a greater love and affection for Jesus Christ. And that's not why he came, and that's not why he died for us. And so the million-dollar question at this point has to be, what did they do at first that will help us see how our affections for him can be stirred? Because it's according to this text, affections matter. Now, when I say affections, a lot of people think of emotions, right? Valentine's Day is coming up. Just a little plug there. Um, husbands. We, when, we, when we hear affections, we think about emotions, right? Um, don't, don't think that when we sing songs, okay, that you've got to do cartwheels and, you know, up in front and scream and shout and get your, get hands go, you know, crazy with your hands up the air. It's been my experience that some of the deepest affections are sometimes the quietest moments. And, and there's, there's a serious aspect uh, to some affections. That's, that's not to say that there's not a place for cartwheels and running and, and hand clapping and hands raised. But ultimately, this is talking about a stirring of the spirit towards the things of God. So the answer that, to, to answer that question, we have to go back to Acts, picking it back up in verse number 11, um, where the Bible says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits. You've got these guys that they're watching Paul operate in this unbelievable amount of power. He's not just praying for the sick. He's not just commanding the sick to not be sick. Things like handkerchiefs and aprons that have touched him were driving out evil spirits and healing people. And when these, I, when these itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists, they see this, they want in on the action, and so they find a demon-possessed guy, and, and they say, I adjure you which that's a very polite way to speak to a demon. Um, I adjure you by, by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. And verse 14 reads, seven sons of Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but, but, but uh, who are you? Seven sons of Sceva that all happen to be brothers. Apparently, it's a family business. They find this demon-possessed guy, 
and adjure him in the, in the name of Jesus who Paul uses. And the demon's like, I, I, I know those guys. I know Jesus, I've, I, and I've heard of Paul. And, 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 and then there's this oh no moment, okay, when the demons basically say, but who are you again? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house, house naked and wounded. That's in the Bible. I didn't make it up. Acts 19. Okay? And, and, and we've talked about this before. If you've ever seen a fight, there's always a debate on who won. Like, who was victorious in that battle? Who was the winner? It was so close. As a general rule, if when the fight started and you had pants on, and when it ended, you don't have pants, I, you're the loser. Okay? You, there's really no debate on who won that battle. Okay? So if you come out, Okay, I'm just telling you, read the Bible slowly. It's spectacular, okay? But we're, we're trying to find what the church at Ephesus did that stirred their affections for Jesus. So, so they were informed by doctrine, but ultimately Jesus himself was the truth that they loved. It was, see, doctrine, doctrine is a person. That's who it was. And so you go to verse number 17. And, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Everybody say extolled. Extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I mean, Jesus is just flexing here over Ephesus. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. He is literally flexing over this city so that disease and the demonic and the wickedness is literally being forced out to the edges of town. His presence is so powerful that even other religious persuasions are acknowledging there's a power that they do not possess, and they're trying to tap into that power without submitting their lives to Christ. You see, they want the benefits of Jesus without submitting their lives to Jesus, and so they try that, and they get beat naked and bloody. And so a, a, a holy fear covers the city, and the church extols the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, for you to extol the name of Jesus, to make much of the name of Jesus, you need to, guess what, know who Jesus is. Because what you think about Jesus informs your worship. What you know about him, what you think about him. So for you to extol the name of Jesus, you have to know who Jesus is. One of the big barricades to prayer is that we have a hard time imagining that Jesus delights in us. We think, and I've been there, been guilty, we think that, that he's patiently putting up with us till we get to heaven and quit being morons.
we, we think God is just frustrated at us and just, just patiently enduring, putting up with us until we make it to the other side and so there's not an opportunity for us to be morons anymore. But that's not what the Bible says about it. In fact, if we watch Jesus walk and interact with men and women, we find a man who is full of grace and compassion, who is full of mercy. Think of the woman at the well who had five husbands and was currently engaged in a sinful act. Think about her. Think about Zacchaeus who purchased the right from Rome to raise money for an occupying brutal regime in the Romans. Think about how gently and gracious he dwelt with them and Jesus was not put off by him. In fact, he said this, Zacchaeus, you come down from there for I'm coming to your house today. Now, that doesn't sound to me like get your stuff and get it put together, son, and then you and I can talk about it. That's not at all what that sounds like. In all his thievery, in all his wickedness, Jesus says, get down here. I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to you today. And they sat at that dinner table. And in response to Jesus's unflinching love, despite his rebellion, Zacchaeus was transformed that afternoon. He said, I'll give all that I've taken and I'll give more. For the woman caught in adultery, the law says that she was to be pelted with stones until she died. And what was his response to the accusation? Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then we find the oldest to the youngest dropped their rocks and left. Then he responded, has no one condemned you, woman? Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. When you look upon him, when you gaze upon and meditate upon who Christ is and what Christ has done, it becomes easy to extol his name. But if we see him wrongly, if you don't get his righteous life, if you don't get that he went to the cross and paid the price for you, if you don't get that he was resurrected, showing that you've been set free from all that binds you, then it becomes very difficult to worship him. It becomes imperative, church, that we feed our affections with who Jesus really is. In, in, in Revelations 2, they loved truths about Jesus. But those truths about Jesus did not lead them to love Jesus himself. It, it, it would be equivalent to uh, of me saying, man, I love my wife. I, I, love, I love her blue eyes. Okay? But she gets on my nerves. Okay, I, I, and, and I'd rather not talk with her, okay? If she could just look at me with those beautiful blue eyes, that would be awesome. But other than that, I really can't stand her. That's what the equivalent would be like. I just love her blue eyes. Would you just please look at me with those blue eyes? Okay, that's the equivalent. He's, he's moving them into truth that leads to an extolling of the Lord. 
a worship unto the Lord in light of who he is and in light of what he's done. This is why the word of God is so important. It informs you of who Jesus Christ is, not the Jesus Christ that's in your mind, but actually who he is. We can have some false assumptions. We can have some false ideas based upon our experiences here on earth, but we've got to go to the word of God when we're confused about who he is because that's what lets us know. All of us are guilty of creating a Jesus that's different than the Jesus of the scripture. So let the word of God inform us of who he is and then let's meditate on it. That's what the church did. Let's think about it. Let's build up in us so that we might extol his name. But that's not all that they're doing. They're extolling his name. But then look what happens at verse number 18. And I'm going to hasten to a close here. Verse 18 says, Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Here's the beauty at Ephesus. Ephesus is blowing up, but here's my favorite thing about it. It's gritty. It's gritty. I mean, it is gritty in that these people, these are people who don't know how to pretend yet. They don't know how to go, I'm fine when everything is not fine. They're coming in and they're just divulging their practices. They are confessing to one another where they have fallen short. Those are the two things that this church did. Extolled the name of Jesus Christ and the renown of Jesus Christ and the confession of their sinful practices. Those two things are woven together in a fabric that can't be torn. Because when you understand that God is aware of all your sinful rebellion already and has loved you anyways, you have been set free to not pretend that you're more than you are. But if you don't get it, if you don't get Jesus, if you don't understand that he knows all the thoughts of your minds and desires of your heart and he loves you anyways, then you, hear me, you will be forced to pretend that you are more than you are. And that's exhausting. That is exhausting. There's this weird thing that happens in churches everywhere. It doesn't take you long to put on the clothes of the church that you worship at. And I'm not, I'm not talking about our, how we dress. It doesn't take long to think, I, I, I got to have this. I got to have that. I need to have a Bible probably got to be a King James. I probably got to have a journal. I got to take some notes. I need to learn certain phrases. I need to learn at what part of the song we raise our hands, what time we put them down, when do we dance, when do we shout, and then we, we begin to mimic the actions of congregation. And in so doing, you compare yourself spiritually with the Joneses to where you measure up. Where you, where you feel you're measuring up. You, you just pretend that you are, and so you tend to regurgitate truth rather than walk in it. 
God has created not just persons, but a people. And so he comes, and, and we looked at this last week. He comes in Genesis, and he says, I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to redeem all things to myself. And he forms Israel through Abram. Then Pentecost happens. The Holy Ghost falls, and he creates the church. And when, what that means is that we are aware of grace in our salvation. But the practice of grace occurs in community as we are fully known and fully loved anyway. You get to walk in grace in community when you are fully known and loved anyway. And the more that you and I refuse to do, that less a, less an experience of grace that we'll be able to walk in. Pretending, and I ask for music to come, pretending to be more than you are is exhausting. Just, just like, it's just like the hide and seek that I play with my kids, okay? I can see their little feet at the bottom of the curtain that they're standing behind. Dad, come find me. Or how about the better one, the, eye, the hands over the eyes in the middle of the living room? Dad, come find me. You can't find me. I mean, it's really, like, really? Does any of us think that we're fooling God? I mean, we know we're not. So that must mean you're trying to fool us. And that's, it's, it, when I'm talking about exhausting, I'm talking about this. It's a ridiculous hobby. I mean, get a boat, seriously. <laughs> That'd be far more fun than that and probably less painful because the game of pretending withers the soul. The, the, the sinful practices that the new believers at Ephesus were divulging <laughs> weren't run-of-the-mill stuff. It's not, it's not like, hey, I'm really angry with my, my wife this week. Or, you know, it's, it, it's not that I, 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 I chewed out someone uh, who wasn't going fast enough. Those, those weren't the things, you know. I said some things I didn't mean. That's not what they were divulging. You know what they were divulging? It was witchcraft. Okay? All kinds of sordid practices. It's, it's more like, hey, I got this neighbor, Bill, and there's a strip of, strip of our lawn that we share, and, and he just never takes care of his side. I'm always mowing mine so great, and he just lets his just kind of come up, and there's weeds and all sorts of things. So you know what I did? I killed a goat, and I, I, I cursed his family. That's the type of stuff. Just want to come clean about that. That's the type of stuff that these, that these people were divulging. <laughs> I say all that to say, don't think that you are so far off that your sin is so grotesque. There's no way that I could ever come clean about this rice. I know, I know some of you are are lying to yourselves right now by thinking, man, if I come clean about the things that I've done where I've been, that all of a sudden the kingdom might unravel. And the devil would love for you to get there. It's been my experience, however, that my weaknesses do far more to push us into holiness than my strengths. 
Because when I come clean, it creates an environment where it's safe for others to do the very same thing. Verse number 19 says that a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Besides gazing on who Jesus is and confessing our sinful practices, there's there's another way that you can stir up your affections for him. The church in Ephesus got very serious about sin. I'm not advocating for book burning. I'm not saying, hey, grab your television set, meet me in the parking lot after church. That's not what I'm saying. But this passage shows their seriousness about holiness that has led them to action. They're not passive about their sin. And my big concern for us as a church is not that we, not that we would ever over-preach grace because that's impossible to do. If we had all the words in every language and on earth and you wouldn't be able to preach enough about the grace and mercy of God. You just wouldn't. My concern is that in the good, the right preaching of grace, that we might get confused and think that grace makes sin safe. And it doesn't. So that we might know Jesus and extol his name, that we might be honest about where we have fallen short, either in mind or heart or action, and that we might take very seriously sin in our lives and even the sin that could potentially dwell in our hearts today. All of us in this room, all of us have iniquity. All of us have this bent that's inside of us. We are all fallen. All of us are prone to certain wanderings. But what's being described in Revelation 2 and Acts 19 is something that can be found all over the Bible. You look at the letter to the Colossians. Set your minds on Jesus. Set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is. It's this idea of thinking and dwelling on him. And then you get down to verse 5 and it says, And put to death, therefore, that which is in you. So yes, let's focus on Jesus. Yes, let's confess, but let's also be violent against the sin that we're warring against today. The sin that's going to draw us away from this. My question is this, if you stand with me this morning, what are we pursuing? What are you after today? What are you searching for? Are you just here because somebody made you? Are you here because you didn't want people to think less of you for missing? What are you after today? What are you searching for today? What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing an affectionate relationship with Jesus while simultaneously confessing and divulging practice and building a defense against the sin 
Because the Bible says that when these things are clicking in our lives, the overflow of the heart and affections toward Jesus is what occurs. All of a sudden, we're back to where we first started. Oh, we're back to our first love. We've come back to what we were doing in the beginning. I'm not concerned at all about doctrinal drift here. That's not where my mind is at. I think we're pretty ferocious when it comes to doctrine. And we're, I think we're all in glad submission here today to what God has revealed about himself in the word of God. And we'll protect and we'll fight for those things and we'll fight for the unity because we believe in that. But I do believe that in an environment like this, truth can be exalted beyond the one who is truth. So the next thing you know, you love doctrine, but you don't love Jesus the way. You don't love Jesus the way that you love that doctrine about him. And when that takes place, you become loveless. You become graceless. You become impatient with other people. Doctrine is important. Theology is important, but it's only important in so much as it informs us and fuels our love and our passion for him that works itself out as we love and patiently walk with others inside the family and outside the family. Dear church, how are you feeding your affections? How are you being stirred? How are your affections being stirred? Are they being stirred? Are you stirred? If you bow your head, close your eyes with me as they play this song. Just want to open it up for just a few moments here for us to pray and just get real honest with ourselves in this adult Bible study this morning. How serious are you about sin? When's the last time that there was any confession that came out of you? John told us in his letter, if you say there is no sin in you, you lie. Let's get real honest with ourselves in the closing moments of this service. Would you lift up your voice? Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those that give generously to this ministry. If you would like more information, please visit our website at landmarkapostolicchurch.net. But have a great day and God bless.